Let's look in the book of First Kings in chapter number 19. If you'll turn with us in your Bibles, you'll realize that we are picking up where we have left off. This man, Elijah, two weeks ago, we talked about Elijah at Kareth. Last week, we talked about Elijah at Carmel. Today, I want to talk about Elijah at the cave, at Kareth, Carmel, and the cave. And today, we will study about his time in the cave. And so let's look together in 1 Kings 19. We'll get us a starting place in verse number 9. And if you are able and willing, I would invite you to stand with us and we'll reverence the reading of the word of the Lord. I don't know when I have enjoyed anything any more than what I have these last few weeks studying about Elijah and preaching about his life. And that's saying something because I sure have enjoyed some messages and some times of study in recent months an awful lot. I don't know when I've enjoyed being God's preacher any more than what I have in the last two or three, five, six, eight years of my life, last 30 years, 25 years of my life. Um, I mean, I've, I'm not, uh, it's not getting old serving the Lord. I'm not getting wearied in the journey. I'm enjoying the trip. Amen. And I'm thankful for it. I had so much, uh, I've had so much of a good time and feasted on those feasts. And I'm still studying some of the others, trying to get them ready. I enjoyed that Feast of Pentecost. And even going to mention some things this morning that will harken back to that message. Uh, the, the, the message recently that I preached about Daniel and that young man who made up his mind. Last night I was looking again in the book of Ruth and, and dwelling on her becoming a daughter and a, uh, a damsel, a daughter, a dipper, a, uh, a diner, and... and uh, dwelling on those blessings in the field of Boaz, but I don't know that I've enjoyed anything anymore than what I have these days in the study of Elijah. Brother Freddie said preaching is kind of like having young uns. He said whatever the last baby y'all had was is the prettiest baby you ever saw. And uh, he said preaching kind of works that same way. He said whatever message it is that you uh, are working on right now, that God's working in your heart, it's the, mo- it's the best one that you've ever worked on. It's, it's the most excited that you've ever been. He said, that's the way God works it in your heart, gives you zeal for what it is he's placed in your heart. So uh, 1 Kings 19, verse number 9, the word of the Lord says, And he came hither unto the cave, unto a cave, and lodged there. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, and said unto him, What doest thou here, Elijah? Some of you will remember it's been about 11 years since we preached that series on what doest thou here. This is where we began our studies. And he said, I have been very jealous for the Lord God of hosts. For the children of Israel have forsaken thy covenant, thrown down thine altars, and slain thy prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. And he said, Go forth and stand upon the mount before the Lord. And I and behold, the Lord passed by, and a great strong wind rent the mountains, and break in pieces the rocks before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. But And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. That's almost hard for us to, con- to conceive after what's just happened in the previous chapter that the Lord was not in the fire. But the Bible says, after the fire, a still, small voice. And it was so when Elijah heard it that he wrapped his face in his mantle and went out and stood in the entering in of the cave. And behold, there came a voice unto him and said, What doest thou here, Elijah? You can be seated. 
Thank you for standing with us while we read the word of the Lord. We will remain in this portion of scripture in the entirety of the message. And I would invite you to keep your Bibles open with us and follow along as we look in the word of the Lord. Now, if you'll recall two weeks ago, we talked about Elijah at Kareth. It is that place of Kareth, the brook Kareth. And we studied how the drought came because of Elijah's preaching in agreement with the word of the Lord. And God separated him out at Kareth. That it is a place of division, a place of provision, and a place of vision. And he experienced the Lord at Kareth. And we learn how God will separate us from everything else unto himself. Elijah at Kareth was a lesson in separation unto God. The Lord wants you to be separated unto Him. He brought us out that He might bring us in. He wants us to be separated unto God that we might fellowship with us. Last week we saw Elijah at Carmel, how he dug a trench. And again, the lesson was a splitting open. It was a separation, a division. That was not separation unto God, but separation from the world. This separation was to identify who the true and living God is and who the true believers are. And God answered by fire, and the people worshipped Him and said, The Lord, He is the God. The Lord, He is the God. This week we see Elijah at a cave. And again, it is separation. At Kareth it was a ditch. At Carmel it was a trench. And this week it is a separation in the earth called a cave. A split open place. A division in the earth that God has created. This was not a place dug by man. Last week's uh, trench was dug by Elijah. Elijah had to decide in his heart that he was going to be separated from the world and he dug a trench. But this place was not dug by man. This was a cave that was made by God. And it was prepared for uh, that uh, shelter might be had with the full understanding that this is a place where Elijah would find a place with the Lord. This uh, place of Kareth was a separation unto God. The place of Carmel was a separation from the world. But the cave is a separation in the Spirit. This is a providentially appointed place for the Holy Ghost to work with the heart of Elijah. We're finding the Spirit of God speaking to him. And the word of the Lord came unto Elijah and said unto him, What doest thou here, Elijah? It was a place where when he could not find God in fires and winds and earthquakes, he could still find God in the breath of the Holy Spirit when he spoke in a still, small voice. I'm thankful the Lord knows where to put us, how to place us, and how to speak to us through His sweet Holy Spirit. There are times when if God were to set off thunderings and lightning bolts in heaven, set off sky rockets above us, shake the ground beneath us, set our world on fire, we wouldn't recognize it. But He knows how to get us in quiet places, solitary places, and with a still, small voice, speak to our hearts, and through His sweet Spirit, breathe upon our souls. And in solitude and separation, the Holy Ghost does a work in our lives. I may not get back to it. I might lose this somewhere in my train of thought. So I'll say this parenthetically while I am yet here. That is how God works in salvation. Even if you're in a crowd of people, the Holy Ghost begins to isolate you through the working of conviction. 
I remember the night I got saved. There was probably 2,000 people there the night I got saved. But I didn't care if anybody else was there. I mean, while everybody in the whole crowd was sitting around me, the Lord identified me. God, the Holy Ghost, put the spotlight on my life. Seemed like it was just the Lord and me that night. It was just God doing business with my heart and me doing business with the Lord. And I found myself alone before God, realizing I was going to answer before Him for my sin and my shortcoming and understanding how much I needed Him and could not help myself. And the Holy Spirit spoke to my heart and said, If you will let me, I will do for you what you cannot do. And I put my faith and trust in the blessed Lord Jesus Christ and He saved my soul from sin and changed my life and took away my heavy burden. And then I could rejoice with others. I was out of that cave of isolation. But God put me in that place. Though there were others around, it was as if He had prepared a place for me where His still, small voice could speak to my heart. And if you've ever been saved, you know what that's like. For God to whisper unto your soul. For it to seem like earthquake and fire and trembling is all around you. But then to hear the sweet, peaceful voice of God speaking to your soul. And you realize that everything is going to be alright. That God has it under control. That you are the apple of His eye. That He does love you and will work in your life. And that life is worth the living because Jesus lives. This prophet of God came to that place here in the cave. And the Lord spoke to him when he wanted to die. And he realized life was worth living because the Lord lives. And because He still speaks. And because there's still a sweet Holy Ghost that does deal with our hearts. I want you to notice this morning about a dozen things. I don't have some points, just points, and we're going to run this morning. Pace. I'm not going to pace myself. We are going to sprint through these things this morning. But I want you to notice this morning as we're picking up really where we left off last week. I want you to notice the execution that took place. We left off last week where Elijah prayed fire down from heaven. And how that the Lord began to answer. And the people said, the Lord, He is the God. In verse 39 of chapter 18. But then there is an execution that takes place. In chapter 18 and verse number 40. They took all the prophets of Baal and threw them into the river. And since there had been no rain for three and a half years, I'm going to make the assumption that this river is probably dry. Three and a half years of drought will dry out just about everything. This river is so dry that the, the, that Ahab earlier in the chapter is rounding up his horses to find a place where he can get them something to drink. Had there been water in the river, he'd have just run them down to the river. But I believe this river is a dry riverbed at this point. And that's especially interesting since... They took all of those 400 prophets of Baal, 450 prophets of the grove that had been eating at Jezebel's table. They took them down to the river and they killed them all and threw them in the river. And Brother Lester Roloff said that was what you call a non-profit organization. Amen. And threw them all in what was a dry riverbed. That is, they killed them and tossed them in a ditch. And after they tossed them in the ditch, we see the prophet 
prophets of Baal in a dry riverbed and it brought death unto them. But if we hearken back to the first week of this message, we found the prophet of God beside a dry riverbed and he drank out of it. Amen. He survived. He lived. God gave him life in the same place that death came to these these prophets of Baal. My, I sent my message to you this morning and that is this. Hey, you'd be better off in the will of God in a dry riverbed without a drop of water as what you would be to eat at Jezebel's table for three and a half years because in the end, God's going to give deliverance to His people. It may seem like right now that we're losing, but I'm telling you, we are winning. If there's never another drop of rain or water falls from the sky, we are winning. We cannot lose when the Lord is on our side. I'll put my trust in the Lord. I'll lift up mine eyes to the hills from whence cometh my help. My help cometh from the Lord who made heaven and earth. The execution takes place. And then after the execution, there is intercession in verses 42 through 45. So Ahab went up to eat and to drink and Elijah went to the top of Carmel and he cast himself down on the earth and he put his face between his knees. And he said to his servant, go up now and look towards the sea. And he went up and looked and said, there is nothing, nothing, nothing. Oh, how discouraging this must have seemed to the prophet of God. The Lord had promised him, if you'll go show yourself to Ahab, chapter 18, verse 1, that I will send rain upon the earth. And now he has showed himself to Ahab. He has seen the fire fall. He has slain the prophets of Baal. And he has prayed and nothing, nothing. Do you know what it's like to do everything you know to do? He'll be obedient to God to serve the Lord. And my friend, to uh, step out by faith and nothing. And my friend, to read the Bible and nothing. To pray and nothing. To try and nothing. To come just about to the end of yourself and nothing. To get so weary you can't even hold your head up. To lay your head beneath you or between your knees as you bow down and put your face on the ground in prayer and weep and nothing. Oh, but Elijah would not be denied. He would not give up. He would not quit. And he told his servants, said, not only am I going to trust God to do something, he said, just go back and forth seven times. Bring me a weather report. Oh, and he went seven times, the Bible said, and he came back on the seventh time. By the way, I believe when he goes the seven times, every time he comes back, he tells Elijah what he sees. I don't believe he just runs back and forth for the sake of it. Every time he comes back, Elijah pick up his old weary head and the servant would say, still nothing. Still nothing will go again. I don't know why I'm doing this, Elijah, except because you say so. There is nothing there. Go again, son. And Elijah bows his head and begins to talk to the Lord. But oh, on the seventh time, that prophet of God or that servant of God comes back to the prophet and said, well, there's still not much. But he said, there ariseth, in verse 44, there ariseth a little cloud out of the sea like a man's hand. And he said, go up and tell Ahab he better get off that mountain as soon as he can. I hear the sound of an abundance of rain. I'd better get down from there that the rain stopped thee not. And the verse 45 said, the heaven was black with clouds and the wind and there was a great rain. Oh, Elijah went back to the same place where the fire fell and he asked God for the rain to fall. And God had asked Elijah or had promised Elijah it would happen. 
And Elijah was praying in agreement with his faith in God's promise. And the prayer seemed useless to start with. But the weather report showed nothing. But my friend, seven reports later, there's a little bit of something. Faith is not in the big things. Answer to prayer is not always in the big things. Elijah knew this. He knew God didn't always answer with big stuff. He'd already seen God answer with ravens. He'd already seen God answer with a cup full of water in a dry riverbed. He'd already seen God put a meal in the bottom of a barrel and make a cruise of oil never run dry. He knew God could send a flood out of a cloud the size of a man's hand. Besides that, the hand of God was what he was leaning on anyway. Elijah said, oh, you better get out of here. That hand soon will scoop down into the ocean and toss up a handful of water on us. And the waters of the whole earth, the Bible says, are held in the hollow of his hand. Oh, praise God, there's an abundance of rain coming. Oh, it's going to rain, children. Elijah prayed and he didn't stop believing God. And he didn't stop praying. Amen. Amen. Makes me think about what Brother James said about it in James 5 and 17. Elias was a man subject to like passions as we are. Somebody said, oh yeah, but Elijah was different. You know, he's a prophet of God. He was different. He wasn't like us. Oh, he was just like us. And James said he was a man subject to like passions as we are. That is what bothered him bothered you. What bothers you bothered him. What troubles you troubled him. What worries you worried him. What causes you to get upset caused him to get upset. He had feelings just like we do. He had doubts and concerns and uh, worries uh, just like what we do. He was a man subject to like passions as we are. But Leonard Ravenhill said the problem is we are not men subject to like prayer as he was. May the Lord help us. He prayed, friend. Oh, and he prayed earnestly that it might not rain and it rained not on the earth by the space of three years and six months. And he prayed again and the heavens gave rain and the earth brought forth her fruit. Praise God for a man of God that knows how to pray. Execution, intercession. And then I want you to notice the precipitation. The precipitation. Oh, didn't it rain, children? Didn't it rain? I'm telling you, rain. Yes, rain, Lord. Oh, oh my, didn't it rain? And some of y'all know the song I'm talking about. I'm telling you, it rained. Chapter 18, verse 41. Before Elijah ever even prayed. Before Elijah ever even sought the Lord. Before he heard one single weather report, let alone the many reports he would get. My friend Elijah said, go and tell Ahab, I hear the sound of an abundance of rain. He said, Ahab, get thee up and eat and drink, for there is a sound of an abundance of rain. Before there was rain, before there was a report of rain, before there was a cloud, Elijah heard the sound of it. The sound of rain was not the sound of water falling from heaven, because there was no water falling from heaven yet. It was the sound of the promise of the Lord. When the report came in from the weatherman that there was an itty bitty cloud far away over the sea, Elijah sent word to Ahab and said, get off the mountain and take cover in town before the rain gets too heavy to travel. A storm's coming in. Hallelujah. And verse number 44, end of the verse, he said, go up and say unto Ahab, prepare thy chariot and get thee down that the rain stop thee not. And brother, 
here it rained. I mean a frog strangling rain. My friend, there was a great rain in verse number 45. And Ahab rode and went to Jezreel. The rain fell just like the fire fell. Elijah, when he needed fire, he looked to heaven and God sent fire. Elijah, when he needed rain, he looked to heaven and God sent rain. Elijah, when he needed anything, looked to heaven and God sent it. Oh, may we learn the lesson this morning. When you have a need, would you quit looking to the world? Would you quit looking to somebody else? Quit looking to Hollywood. Don't look to Pharaoh. Don't look to Egypt. Don't look to Ahab. Look to heaven and God will send what you need from heaven. The same God that sent the fire sent the rain. As a matter of fact, we can say the same God sent the raven. Same God that sent the water. Same God that sent the meal, same God that sent the oil, the same God that sent the fire, the same God that sent the rain. He is the same God that sent the prophet. Amen. I mean, God sends it all. He's the source of every good and perfect gift. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. And it was flowing down that day. Rain from heaven. And you think you've ever been happy to see it rain. Buddy, you have no idea how happy they were three and a half years without rain. He realized they had kids starting preschool who had never seen rain before. I mean, three and a half years without rain. And brother, they were happy to see it rain come that day. The precipitation. And then notice the conversation. Chapter 19 in verse number 1. And Ahab told Jezebel all. Brother, things are going to get bad now. You see, Ahab... Ahab made it back to Jezreel after Elijah, but before the rain. Elijah outran outran Ahab's chariot all the way back. I mean 15 miles. 15 miles from Carmel to Jezreel on a mountainside. And here this prophet of God is probably around 60 years old. And he outruns a chariot all the way back. I mean fastest horses in town. And he outruns a chariot flat-footed all the way back. My friend, to the city of Jezreel. But my friend, Ahab arrived after Elijah, but before the rain. And when he got back, he told Jezebel all about how things went. She asked him how things go on Carmel. I mean, they didn't have cell phones. There was nobody Facebook live in the thing. He had to come back and give a report of what was going on up on Mount Carmel. And she was keenly interested in it. You see, Ahab didn't care much about religion. He never was really that deeply religious. Fast horses was his interest. We find it in chapter 18. That's what he was doing out there, was rounding up horses and trying to find a place to give them some water. And Jezebel is the one who fed the prophets. And they ate at Jezebel's table. Didn't say they ate at Ahab's table. They ate at Jezebel's table. Her father, Ethbaal, was the head or the chief priest of this pagan religion of the prophets of Baal. Asked her off was the female goddess of that thing. And my friend Jezebel counted herself as the chief princess of Asheroth. She was deeply religious, deeply into the occult, deeply into idolatry. She cared about which prophet won upon the mountain. You know what Ahab cared about? My horse is going to have something to drink. Ahab cared about fast horses. And when Elijah began to pray for rain, he told Ahab 
I'd have said, get up and hurry up down from here. Just go ahead and eat and drink. Have yourself a good time. Be relieved. Rain is coming. Rain brought relief to Ahab. But what happened before the rain brought anger to Jezebel? She was not worried about rain. She was worried about them prophets. She was not worried about the weather. She was worried about her religious position. My friend, you'll never find another occasion in the Bible where Ahab and Elijah have a headbutting. It's pretty much over. All that Ahab cared about was send some rain so my gardens of herbs will grow and so my horses don't get thirsty and it will be okay. But Jezebel is more upset than what she has ever been. She's more angry than she has ever been in her life. By the way, let me say this while I'm here. Isn't it interesting that a man who's so interested in fast horses has his personal horse attached to his personal chariot and I believe it's got to be the fastest one in the land and the prophet of God outran it all the way back 15 miles back to town. Brother, that's getting old, ain't it? And my friend, this man who goes back and tells Jezebel all that Elijah has done. Can't you see Ahab coming in that day to old Jezzy? She says, how'd it go today? What happened? He says, well, I've got good news and I've got bad news. The good news is it's going to rain. It's going to rain. <laughs> oh, what's the bad news? All your preachers is dead. Every one of them is dead. And not only that, they threw them in the bottom of that dry river. And when the rain comes, they are going to be washed down the river. We won't even be able to find their carcasses to bury them. We won't even be able to build a shrine to them. The bad news is, all oh, that's washed up. But the good thing is, I'm going to have a place to feed and water my horses again. Everything's going to be all right with me. I'm okay. Jezebel, I don't know what you're going to do, but me and my horse is going to have a good time. And Jezebel got some mad. You could have fried an egg on her head. I mean, she was steamed. She was hot. She was angry. Oh, my friend. She was so upset. And listen, she got so angry with the prophets about those prophets who had been eating at her table that she declared war on old Elijah. Listen to me, friend. What seemed like to Elijah was victory. All of us preached last week. We all rejoiced in the victory of the Lord that he gave Elijah when the fire fell. And all the people said the Lord he is the God. If the story had ended there, we would have stood and give Elijah a standing ovation and said, praise God. And we would have preached from then on how Elijah never had any more problems than Ahab and Jezebel. But that is not where the story ends. Listen to me this evening. Following every great victory in your Christian life, there will be another battle. And just because you win the victory today does not mean the war is over with. Matter of fact, your victory you win today will likely spark a new conflict. It will likely spark a new battle just because you've waved the victory flag. Just because you've seen the glory smoke. Just because the fire has fallen. Just because it seems like the enemy is in two. Does not mean that the battle is done. It likely means the battle is just beginning. The battle will not be done until we go out of here in a chariot of fire. The battle will not be done 
done until we cross the river Jordan. The battle will not be done until we drop the mantle of this old flesh and rise up into the heavens. While we are here, there will be a battle to fight. And some of you maybe don't remember the life of Elijah, but if you do, you know what I'm talking about. His battle was done when the chariot fell. His battle was done when he crossed Jordan's river. His battle was done when he went off in the heavens and dropped the mantle down. But his battle was not done until then. You may have victory after victory after victory, but following that victory will be battle after battle after battle. It was so with Elijah and it will be with you. Just because a fire fell doesn't mean the trouble's over. We see what happens in verse number 2 of chapter 19. There are communications that come unto Elijah. Conversation turns to communication. And Jezebel sent a messenger unto Elijah saying, So let the gods do to me, and more also, if I make not thy life as the life of one of them by tomorrow about this time. you got 24 hours, pal. And it's all over. Jezebel sent him a letter. Isn't this interesting? She sent him a letter. And it was not a testimony of her conversion. But it was a threat to kill Elijah. She could have called on the army, sought him out in the rain, and killed him. But I think she was scared of him. I don't think she wanted anything to do with Elijah. I don't think she wanted to come in the presence of the man that just killed 850 of her prophets and prayed fire down from heaven. I don't think she wants to do anything like that. She wants to rattle him. She wants to scare him. She wants to intimidate him. And so she sends him a threatening letter. She sends the letter to threaten, to shake, to scare, to even the score. Listen to me this morning, Satan roars. This world threatens. The flesh is intimidated. And fear affects us. And fear defeats us. When Satan does not even touch us. When the devil hasn't even smacked us around. When he's not even given you a black eye. Fear of what he might do. Fear of what he could do. Fear of what he wants to do. Paralyzes us. It grips us. It shuts us down. Even when we have not been wounded. And fear will shut us down. There are people, Brother Thomas could tell this much better than what I could in this regard when fear hits. There are natural reactions. Some people's natural reaction is to react with fight. And then some's natural reaction is to react by fleeing. And then there are some whose natural reaction is to freeze. That is just shut down. They lock up. Nothing happens. I'm going to tell you, it seems like saved folks seem to fall into that last category more often than anybody else. We just shut down. And the devil tries to get us afraid of him and everything he does so we quit doing anything for God. So we shut down. We quit. We freeze. We, uh, we just get all, we get all uh, uh, paralyzed because of what he's done to us to make us afraid. And we haven't even been hurt. We're just scared. I remember when I was a boy, 
My daddy had told me over and over again. I've told the story. I'm going to tell it again. Some of you have heard it. Some of you haven't. And then if you have, y'all can take your nap now. Amen. But I remember when I was a boy that uh, I, my daddy had told me, he said, uh, I make sure whenever you feed them dogs and uh, and the cows and all the rest of them, he, we put feed in five-gallon buckets, set it on top of the workbench out there on the uh, on the uh, in the barn. And the lights never worked in the barn. We took the time to wire the thing. They never worked. They still don't work. About three-fourths of time. I don't know why we took the time or the money to wire it when nothing ever works. <laughs> but he said that to put that stuff up there said, and then when you get done be sure to put the lid on top of that five gallon bucket and put a paint can on top of that lid because that open barn out there the possums and the raccoons will knock those buckets over crawl down inside of them and eat all their feet up and I'm not paying to feed every possum and raccoon in this county and so if I go out there again and see that paint can off the top of that lid and those animals eating my feed out of there I'm going to give you a whooping said I am going to lay one on you good hey you're costing me money and I have told you my last time and you know what happens when you tell a kid the last time don't you they don't do what you told them the last time and you have to decide are you going to do what you told them the last time or are you going to tell them again and the best thing you can do is do what you told them and not tell them again I mean, lay it on them thick. Let them know you mean business. And then you don't have to tell them so many times. But if you keep bluffing, you're going to have to keep bluffing. Amen. Amen. But daddy wasn't a bluffer. He didn't bluff. <laughs> Daddy'd wear you out. Amen. Yes, sir. We came in from church one night late, and I'm not afraid of possums. I mean, I don't, possums don't bother me. I don't like them. They're nasty, but I'm not afraid of possums. I am scared to death of a raccoon. I think I'd rather fight a grizzly bear. I mean, I am scared to death of raccoons. And I mean, if I can see them, stay away from them. That's what, I'm always afraid one of them jokers, you know, they get out at night and stir around. I can walk through the woods at night and I'm not even afraid. I'm not afraid of snakes, nothing. Buddy, I don't, if I hear some cracking, first thing pops in my mind, it's got to be a raccoon. It can't be a squirrel or a rabbit. It's got to be a raccoon. I mean, I am scared of raccoons, especially as scared of raccoons getting in a barn with me. I just know what's going to happen. I'm going to get them into an enclosed place. They're not going to have any place to run. They're going to attack me, gnaw my arm off. I just know it's going to happen. So I get in the barn that night to go out there. And of course, we always come in late. Always after church and this kind of thing. And so I go out there. I'm not but about eight or nine years old at this point in my life. I have to crawl up on a five-gallon bucket, stand on the bottom of it, to reach up into that five-gallon bucket that's on top of the uh, wood uh, table that night. And when I reached up there, the paint can was not there. You know, I didn't think about it when I, I'm the one left it off. I didn't think about it then, but when it's not there, when I go back then, and I think about it. And it's dark. Of course, the lights don't work. I'm thinking, you know, I've got to stick my hand inside of there. But th that raccoon could be in there. And if I stick my hand in there with that raccoon, he ain't got no place to go. He's going to gnaw my whole arm off. I did decide this much. I'm right-handed. I'm not putting my right hand in that bucket. I mean, if I've got to risk one, it's going to be the left one. And I reached up in there, reached down inside of that bucket. And when I did, I got a 
handful of fur. And I thought I would just die a fatal death. I mean, I knew at any moment that arm was gone all the way up past the elbow. I knew it was going to happen. I was certain of it. I would bleed out and die in the barn before anybody ever found me. I'm dead, cold and gone in the barn because of that raccoon. I stood there frozen, could not move, clutching with my hand, could not let go of that fur, just dangling up here like this, scared to death and trembling, shaking all over like a leaf. Finally, I eased my hand back up off of that, uh, of that uh, critter that was inside the bucket, fell down off the bucket I was standing on. My heart said, boom, 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 boom. It was beating slow, but beating hard. I backed up to the trailer behind me and stood there trembling, could not move, couldn't run, couldn't scream for help, could not do anything, hoping I would not die, waiting for that raccoon to jump out and eat me alive. And about that time, an old ugly, a bright-eyed possum wallered out the top of that bucket, fell down on the bench, wallered down and flopped onto the ground in the barn and watered his way up under the bottom board of one of those stalls there where the calves are fed. And I stood back and trembled until I got my composure and realized I've got to go feed that dog and get in the house or daddy's going to come out here and give me a whooping. And I went in and I took fed that dog, shook all the way, walking like this. I mean, all the way down there up to the dog pen, fed that dog, put the stuff up, put the paint can on top of that feed bucket and went in the house looking like I had just seen a ghost and I had my own. I mean, life left my body and came back. I was scared to death. My daddy says, uh, everything all right? I said, yes, sir. He said, you feed that dog? I said, yes, sir. Any animals in that food? I said, no, sir. They were not. They done took off by the time I said that. I knew better than a lie, but I wasn't volunteering any details. Amen. And I went on to bed, took me some Pepto-Bismol and went to bed. Laid there and trembled and shook and vibrated all night long. Got up the next morning still shaking. But I, I didn't have sense enough to even let go. I couldn't even get out of the bucket. I just stopped there. Are you listening to me? In your life, the devil, he roams about as a roaring lion. A lion roars in order to instill fear in his prey and cause the, uh, that, per that uh, prey that will freeze just to stick with fear and to tremble and to stop until he has time to pounce and to destroy. Jezebel was doing the same thing to old Elijah. I will make him afraid, cause him to fear. I know how to shut his ministry down. 850 prophets won't do it. The drought won't do it. That dry riverbed won't do it. Ravens won't do it. Having to live with a widow woman and her son won't do it. All the other things in this land won't do it. But if I get him afraid, he'll shut her down. If I get him scared, he'll stop preaching. This world would love to shut you down. Get you to stop serving God. Get you afraid of everything. If you serve God on the job, you'll lose your job. If you pray in public, folks won't think well of you. If you live for God, they may not accept you. He gets you frozen with fear and he shuts our life for Christ down by making us afraid. And we're like a little boy standing there with his hand in a bucket. And what do we got a hold of? We think it's got a hold of us and we've got a hold of it. It's fear that is shutting us down. 
and our fear is unsubstantiated. If 850 prophets of Baal could not defeat Elijah, one little woman with makeup on her face, how like Jezebel wars, how my friend and her hair tied up, how my friend, she could have defeated Elijah. Elijah's a man's man, a mountain man, a rough and rugged survivalist. And Jezebel is a princess. She's dainty. She could not have killed Elijah. He's scared to death of her. What's she going to do? Bring 850 out after you? She's already done that. Isn't it amazing? Even after our victories, how easily we are frozen by fear. Through many dangers, toils, and snares, I have already come. It's grace that brought me safe thus far and grace that will lead me home. But it shuts him down. And after he's already run 15 miles from, Jezreel, from Carmel to Jezreel, then he runs another 100 miles to Beersheba. 100 miles. Now it takes us about two hours in an automobile to go 100 miles. But imagine trotting that 100 miles on foot after you've already had a fight with 850 men and already prayed until the rain fell and you're having to travel that, that distance in the rain, a great rain, and you're having to travel it on tired 60 some odd year old feet after a three and a half year drought. And he goes a hundred miles and sits down under a juniper tree that I don't know how in the world it survived three and a half years worth of drought. Couldn't have been much of a tree thirsting to death like that. And he sits down and he begs to die. Execution, intercession, precipitation, conversation, communication turns to frustration. When he sits down in chapter 19 and verse 3, when he saw that, he arose and went for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongeth to Judah. It's a whole different country down there where he is. Left Israel, went to Judah. He's gone not only out of town, he's gone out of the country. This is like running across the border into Mexico, running from the princess that has threatened your life. And he left his servant there, but he himself went a day's journey in the wilderness and came and sat down up under a juniper tree. And he requested for himself that he might die. And look at what he says. I believe this really is the bottom line of where Elijah is. It's enough. I don't think that everything that's happening to Elijah here is just fear. I think a lot of it is frustration. It's enough. Enough is enough now, God. When you told me to preach about that rain not coming, I did it. When you told me to go down there to the brook, I did it. When you told me to meet and show myself to Ahab, I did it. When you told me to pray for rain to come again, I did it. But enough is enough. I've been through enough and now it's time to let up. Either take this burden away from me or kill me. I have had enough. It's enough. Had all I can stand. I've had all that I want. All I can stand. Enough's enough. And I'm not going to take it anymore. Elijah's not running just out of fear, but frustration. And here's what I believe personally has got him the most frustrated. He said, I have done these things. In verse number 10. I've been jealous of the Lord thy God. I have uh, been there while they have torn down your altars. They have slain your prophets with a sword. And I, even I, only am left. I believe this is what he's frustrated about. Y'all listen to me. I've missed this my whole life until this week. 
I believe this is what he's frustrated about. Obadiah had two caves full of prophets. Prophets of God. 50 of them in each cave that he had been feeding. There's a hundred other prophets of God. And he knows it. Obadiah knows it. I believe those prophets of God knew it. And yet Ahab brought 850 prophets of the grove and of Baal up on the mountain of Carmel. And when Elijah got there, not one single prophet came out of his cave to help him. Are y'all listening to me? Not one single prophet came out of the cave to help him. And where does Elijah go? He goes to a cave himself. And he sits down in the cave and God says, What are you doing here? Shouldn't I be here, Lord? The rest of your prophets are in a cave, aren't they? They had a chance to help, but they left me standing out there all by myself. All of them don't have a death warrant out for them. The princes don't want to kill them. It's just me. I'm the only one you treat like this. They're sitting over there eating good food. They're living the good life. They haven't tried. They've not risked anything. I've risked everything, and it's enough. I've had enough. I'm tired of it. Why am I the one that's always got to do this? Go get one of them fellas. I'm going to sit in the cave for a while like they do. I'm going to rest. If you want somebody to go and stop a rain cloud, call one of them. You want somebody to pray fire down from heaven, go get one of them. I've had enough. Anybody else ever been where he's doing what I'm talking about? Where you feel like, Lord, now, why is it me you're always picking on? Why am I always the one that's got to preach against everything and all the rest of these preachers go and tell everybody about their best life now? I mean, why am I the one that's always got to call out sin? Why am I the one that everybody's got to get mad at? Why do you got to put this on me? Why can't I preach the good message and the glory sermon that everybody shouts hallelujah in? Why you always got to put the hard job on me? Some of you Sunday school teachers ever felt like you were the only person that cared about your classroom? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Some of you musicians ever felt like you were the only one that cared what the singing sounded like? Some of you ever felt like you were the only person in your family that was really trying? Your husband, your wife, your children, your grandparents, your parents, they didn't try, they didn't care. You're the only one giving an effort. Why am I doing this there in the cave? They're just sitting around lousing about. They're benefiting from all my efforts. I'm the one that's always on the front line. I'm the one that's always doing my best. And Lord, it is enough. I'm ready to quit. Going to run off and hide somewhere. Anybody ever said something like that? Some of you have because I have heard you. I'm going to change my name one of these days and run off and hide. That's what my mama used to say. We're alive, but she don't have Facebook. Hallelujah. We'll keep it off of YouTube. Hallelujah. And, they, and I'm the one that edits the CDs. Hallelujah. Praise God. Going to change my name and run off and hide. Had enough? Elijah's there. There are people this morning, you came to church today, you're so tired that you can hardly make it. And I don't mean just physically, I'm talking about emotionally. You're worn out. You've come to the end of things. Every day it's a new battle. You fight one, you think you've got that one. You fight that battle, you think you've got the victory. And next thing you know, a letter arrives in the mail. 
There's a bill in the mail. There's a threat in the mail. There's a lawsuit. There's this. There's that. All of these things. Seems like every time you get any degree of victory, you take one step forward and two steps back, and you're just weary from it. You're sick of it. It's enough. It's enough. Why is everybody else? I hear this kind of thing all the time. Why is everybody else got it so easy? And I've got it so hard, by the way, friend. Everybody else don't got it so easy. Your perception is wrong. Everybody else don't got it so easy. Everybody else got it hard too. But you can't see anybody's problems but your own. And Satan will do all he can to shut you down and cause you just out of fear and frustration to say, I've had it. Had it. Matter of fact, I don't think I'm even going to church. I'll find a cave to crawl in. Are you listening to me? Elijah, what you really need is a good fellowship meal. I don't want to fellowship with nobody. What you need is to go to the preacher's meeting. The last people I want to see is them 100 preachers have been hiding out in that cave. Buddy, they don't want to hear what I have to think about things. Y'all listening to me? I've had it. I've been there. Don't want to talk to nobody. And the last thing you want somebody to try to encourage you because somebody like that is more negative to it at that point in your life. Feels more negative than anybody who would just get in the wallow with you and just whine and cry with you in your pity party. Much rather have someone pity with you and feel sad with you than to try to encourage you. A person won't encourage you might just get throw, rocks thrown out of out of that cave. <laughs> Not interested in, in encouragement right now. I'm going to do. Now listen to this much. <clears throat> I'm going to do what everybody else has been doing. Would you all listen to that just a second? I'm frustrated. I'm upset. I'm not pleased. And I'm going to do what everybody else has been doing. That will get you in so much trouble you'll never get back out of it. Everybody else been going fishing instead of going to church. I'm just going to do it too. I've just had enough. I'm worn out. I'm not going. I'm not going to fight it anymore. I'm just going to do what everybody else has been doing. Matter of fact, Elijah, what are you mad about with them other prophets? They've been sitting in a cave. Well, what are you doing, Elijah? Sitting in a cave. If you're not careful, you'll find yourself doing the very thing that you get frustrated at other people for doing. I had somebody several years ago told me, they called me, they asked me about this person, that person. Oh, they ran everybody down the country and this one and that one. They weren't being mean. They just had it. They had enough. Just frustrated up to the eyeballs. And this is what they said. I will never forget this phrase. And I don't think they even meant it this way, but brother, it was the fact. They said this. They said, because they did wrong... I'm not going to do right. Because they did wrong, I'm not going to do right. What doest thou here, Elijah? You're in a cave, buddy. Aren't you in the same place they are? Because they did wrong, I'm not going to do right. It will destroy your life. Frustration. So easy to get dark. By the way, caves are dark. <sighs> caves are wet. They are cold. They are places where there are no company. 
And God has not isolated him here. He's isolated himself here. And he says, I, even I only. His complaint is, I've had to do it all by myself. And God didn't tell him to be out there all by himself. He chose it. He chose it. I hope you're listening to me this morning. I have talked over and over and over until I'm all the way up to here. Most days with people and all of the problems that they have. And people have real problems. I'm not making fun of anybody. And I'm not telling people not to tell me about their problems. But after hearing real problems, real troubles, every day, moment by moment, day by day, Hour by hour, phone call by phone call. Then I get to talk to somebody who has sat down purposely in the cave to feel sorry for themselves. And I have a very short patience to hear about people that really ain't got no problem telling me about their problems. I want to say there is nothing wrong with you but you. If you will get up and get out of that cave and get busy doing something, you won't have the problems you've got. You are your problem. The rest of us may be dealing with real problems, but yours is imagined. There's not a soldier standing outside of that cave rattling the saber at old Elijah. Nobody's going to cut off his head. Nobody, my friend, is really going to kill him. But he has conceived it to be this way because one person sent him an ugly letter. Is that right? And there's no need for us to act like we can't get there because we're worse than he is. Most of us hadn't even got a letter yet. Amen. He left it, felt alone. Felt alone. Then there's the imitation. He goes a 40-day journey in the strength of the food. God feeds him under the tree. He goes a 40-day journey. 40 more days on foot in the strength of one meal that God gave to him under the juniper tree. And he hides in a cave. His frustration with the other prophets are there. He's the only one standing publicly. And now he's doing the same thing they were doing. And he's joined the wrong crowd. He's come to imitate them. But then God gives him some instruction. And we'll close here. God says in verse number 11, Go forth and stand upon the mount. You realize when you're in the cave what God wants to do? He wants to bring you out and put you back on the mountain. Go forth and stand on the mount. When you're in the cave, God wants to show you some things, but He's got to draw you out of your solitude, draw you out of your pity party. Go stand on the mount before the Lord and I'll show you something. He's about 250 miles from Beersheba, about 350 miles from Jezreel, about 365 miles on foot from Carmel. The place where the fire fell seemed so far away. It's only been about two months. Since the biggest victory of his life. Since one of the biggest victories God ever gave in the Bible. It's only been about two months. And yet victory seems so far away. You ever been where in your life you go from the highest high you've had it spiritually to the lowest low you've had spiritually and though it's only been a short time seemed like victory was a million miles away? When you start examining your life it was just a few days ago that you was riding high wanting to give the devil a black eye excited about Jesus and now you are so deep and in a cave and it seems like that was a million years ago. I've been there. 
But the place where he was standing, 365 miles away from Carmel, is a place the Bible calls Horeb. To Horeb. Verse number 9, He arose and did eat and, strength, eat and drink, and when the strength of that meat 40 days and 40 nights unto Horeb, the mount of God. Does anybody remember what that is? Mount Horeb is the place where he's tending. He's at the foot of the mount that was called Sinai. He's in the place where Moses saw the burning bush. He's in the place where the first Pentecost was held. Where the mount of God, where the Lord gave the law of God. Where Moses saw the glory of God. Where the earthquake, where the rocks shook. Where the fire was felt. Where the glory of God descended on the mountain. That's where he stood. While he's so frustrated and God said, come out on the mountain, let me show you something. God did for Elijah the same thing that he did for Moses. And the wind blew. And the earth shook. And the fire raged. Just like it did when Moses was in the wilderness. And then Moses went, or Elijah went back to the cliff of the rock. And God began to speak to him in a still, small voice. Praise God. Do you remember what happened with Moses when he was there? He saw the same things. But the fire, the earth earthquake the wind was not enough he said Lord I must see your glory let me see your glory and God said no man can see my face and live but he said I'll put you in the cleft of the rock I'll put you in a cave put my hand over the mouth of the cave I'll pass by and you'll see my back parts that is the after effect of the, uh, the uh, effect of where I came through and when I take my hand off you'll see the evidence so where I've been, you'll hear my voice and you'll see my glory. The word glory in the Hebrew means weight. Not W-A-I-T, but weight as in been heavy. It means in a good way. Literally, it means weight of head, a weight of goodness. Like a person's influence, they would throw their weight around, their power. And when I let Moses said, I want to see your glory, that is, he wants to see the power of God's goodness. Elijah's in this cave, and what he needs more than anything else is to see the power of God's goodness. Amen. And it's not in the wind, though the Lord was in the wind. The Bible does tell us that the Lord passed by in the wind. And it was not in the earthquake, and it was not in the fire. But the weight of God's goodness was seen in a still, small voice. We think of it as the Lord whispering in Elijah's ear. It's not what the Scripture really teaches. That still, small voice is not really a word for us to put that in in, human la- in, in, in the English language. The voice in the cave for Elijah was more of a wind than a whisper. It's where the glory is. The, uh, the of God. It is the after effects of where God has come by. It's as if the Lord was breathing on him. Oh, there is a call in this instruction. And the call is to receive the Holy Spirit. To receive the blessings of God. To receive the presence of God. In his solitude, when I studied this yesterday, it made me think of John 20 after the resurrection. When Jesus, after the power of the resurrection, finds his apostles in a place of solitude. And behind the doors, the Bible said, in John 20 and 22 he breathes on them saying receive ye the Holy Ghost this precious call in solitude is the breath of comfort brother Randy 
It's when God shows up as the comforter and nothing else will satisfy. Fire, wind, lightning, and hell won't do it. But a simple from God gives you what you need. You don't know where God is. You can't see Him. You can't find Him in the wind, the fire, the earthquake. But somehow or another, when the breath of God comes into your soul, you know He's close enough fire, close enough by that you can feel Him breathe on you. Does anybody know what it's like to be near enough to the Lord to feel Him breathe on you? Praise God. Comfort in this call. The instruction was to hear the call. The instruction was to carry out the command. Verses 14 through 16, he tells him to get up and anoint a bunch of people. I won't go through all of it, but it's people of power. Elijah, there is still an anointing to be had. There are still adversaries to overcome. There's still action to be taken. And God will give you the power to do it. Many of us would have lost confidence in Elijah because of his, because of his discouragement. We would have said there's no place for him. He's never getting another invitation. Well, nothing else to do with a guy like that. Give up on God after such a victory as what he had, after all God's done for him, after all the prayers God answered for him. Then he goes off and hides in the cave, acts like everybody else that he's criticized. He's criticized everybody else for hiding out. Now look at him. He's doing the same thing everybody else is doing. We're getting rid of him. Running him out of town, tarred and feathered. Not God. There's a command for him. He's discouraged, but he's not defeated. Hear me this morning. You may be seated in the pews and think, I'm just about had it. It's enough. You may be discouraged, but if you'll accept the breath, you're not defeated. And then Elijah, one of his chief complaints is, I'm by myself. And the Lord says, I'm going to fix that problem. I'm going to give you a companion. Hallelujah. Verses 18 through 21. He said, yet, Elijah, I have 7,000 in Israel that have not bowed their knees to Baal. They've not kissed him. Oh, and not only that, there's one specific one that's down there plowing with, a, with his oxen. And I have anointed him to be the prophet in your room. That is, you're supposed to teach him how to do your job. And when before you leave here, your work's not done. Before you leave here, you're going to instruct him. And he's going to help you. He needs you and you need him, Elijah. Hallelujah. Elijah learned he was not alone. He had a companion. One specifically in his corner at all times. And the Bible said in 2 Kings 3.11 of Elisha, that Elisha poured water on the hands of Elijah. Now that sounds like a strange thing to me and you. Who's this guy here? He's the one who pours water on my hands. Wouldn't do a whole lot of good to tell, tell one another that in our day and age. We wouldn't know what that meant, would we? TJ and Jake's pretty good buddies, but I don't know if they'd introduce one another that way. He's the one who pours water on my hands. The reason he pours water on his hands to do the work of a prophet, you had to be ceremonial cleansed. And they didn't dip their hands into a bowl of water to do that because then all the sediment's in the water. To be ceremonially cleansed, you hold your hands out away from your body and some other minister of the gospel, some other prophet of God who also had been cleansed would pour water on your hands to wash away the filth, the dirt, the grime and make you ceremonially cleansed. When it said that Elisha poured water on the hands of Elijah, that is, he's the person who helped prepare Elijah to do the work of a prophet. 
I want to say thank God for some people when my hands are dirty, when I have failed, when I've been down there at the cave and I'm ashamed of myself. Praise God for some people who have poured water on my hands. For some folks who said not only has the Lord not given up on you, but I haven't given up on you. Put your hands out. I'm going to pour water on your hands. Hallelujah. Oh, bless His name. And this morning, if I can do nothing else for you, today, those of you who may be in this time of discouragement or in the cave just had enough, I, this morning, if I can just take and pour water on your hands and let you know that there's a work for you to do and that God still wants to use you and that the Lord will still honor your labor if you'll just just let me pour water over your hands. Hallelujah. 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 Thank you for pouring water over my hands. Oh, bless His name. Hallelujah. Praise God. Hallelujah. Been days Brother Randy's rode with me to preach and he was probably in better shape preaching what I was. But the Lord didn't call him to preach. But he poured water over my hands. Hallelujah. Oh, bless his name. Are you listening? Some of you that couldn't even go with me in your place where you were alone in the prayer closet while I was trying to do the work that I was too discouraged to do. You poured water over my hands. Woo! Oh, bless his name. When Elijah needed it so much, a hundred prophets wouldn't even come out of the cave. But there's one that'll kill his cows, burn his plows, and follow you and pour water over your hands. Hallelujah. You are not alone this morning. You are not the only one. You are not fighting this thing by yourself. God will send you comfort. And above all, Elijah found out he had never been alone to start with. God had not only sent him this prophet, but when he looked back over his life and assessed things, he realized God sent him ravens. He realized God sent him a widow woman and a son. He realized God sent him a whole crowd that worshiped God upon Mount Carmel. He realized it's all those who hadn't bowed their knees to Baal. He realized there wasn't Elisha to pour water over his hands. But the one who brought it all was the sweet comforter that breathed that breath of the Holy Holy Spirit that came to him even in the cave. He was separated in that place, but he wasn't separated from God. The Holy Ghost was there all along. I'm finished preaching. You've got to come with a song so I don't preach no more longer. I preached way too long this morning already. But I'm preaching short tonight so it'll balance out on even. You put one foot in ice, another one in, in boiling hot water, and on average you're comfortable. The Lord told him to come up out of that cave and get to work. Hallelujah. But when he came up out of the cave, he had so much power on him everywhere he went. He anointed somebody else. <laughs> oh, praise the Lord. You thought Elijah had power before? Before, all Elijah had was power enough to do what God put him there to do. When he came back out of the cave, when he made the rebound, he had so much power on him. He shows up at one house, at one fellow's house, and he anoints him to be king over Israel. Shows up at another fellow's house, he anoints him to be king over Judah. Shows up out in the field, he anoints a prophet in his room. Everywhere he goes, not only is he anointed, everybody he touches gets anointed. 
saying you may think it's enough and you've come to the end of yourself but seconds may be best in your life God may use you more after you thought you were through than what he used you before you thought you got started hallelujah well there's been some days especially in the last four or five years I mean just fly high as what I could fly and then fall hard as I could fall and sit down and think I'm finished I don't don't want to preach anymore I don't want to pastor anymore I don't even know if I want to get up in the morning just wore out just as enough and somehow or another God would let me know you're not through and he'd give me something to preach and I'd get up to preach and the Holy Ghost come down surreal and I'm thinking man I ain't never had this much fun this much enjoyment this much pleasure this much I rejoice in preaching in my whole life and I've never enjoyed it more than what I've ever had than what I've enjoyed it today and God lets me know there's still a work to do those days, especially when I see one of our preacher boys from here, God use them and them get anointed. And the power of God get on their lives. And if I just believe I just have some small role to play, just a little place in it somewhere, I'm reminded that if I be anointed, that not only can God empower me, but He can use me to empower those who are around me. I say to God, be the glory. I'm so thankful to be in the work of the Lord this morning. Hallelujah. I got to quit, but I'm going to say this before I quit. If every preacher in America crawls off in a cave and quits, I don't have any business in a cave. And if you find this preacher off in a cave somewhere running off from home wanting to change my name and become something I ain't never been and be like them and whatever else, somebody please send an army down there after me. Draw me out of that cave and let me know God ain't done till we see the chariot coming down from heaven. The Lord is not done with us until we cross the Jordan's River. The Lord is not finished until that one that is behind us is ready for the mantle to fall on them. Oh, it's for me to wear until God takes us from this old world. Get out of the cave and let the breath of God breathe on your life. This morning, some of you are just ready to go eat lunch. But there's some of you needs to get some help from the Lord. There are people in this place this morning that's this close towards this close towards the end. This close towards tossing in the towel. And today's the day to get help from God. It's not enough. Elijah said it's enough. Tanya, it's not enough. Until I hear the pearly gate click behind my heels, it'll not be enough. Hallelujah. Praise God. Praise God. But we are going to hear it. And oh my, it's really going to happen. Oh, bless His sweet name. Until then, I'll serve the Lord. Everybody stand. We'll work till Jesus comes and we'll be gathered home. I don't know if I've made a lick of sense to anybody else this morning, but the Lord's helped me. Sunday school teacher you thought maybe you've taught enough and it's time to just quit why don't you get some help from your cave choir singer you think well I'll just sit here let them sing they got a good group up in the choir I don't need to do it anymore why don't you get some help from the Lord and start singing again young person life's just overwhelming 
You got the whole thing in front of you and that does not encourage you like it would those of us who are older. It, it scares you to death. Why don't this morning you crawl out of your cave and say, here I am, Lord, breathe on me. Breathe on me. Preacher man, deacon, child of God, mama, you're so worn out with your children. But God wants to help you. Sing for us. Some are already praying. Others need to come. You obey the Lord this morning. I've tried to be sensitive to the Holy Spirit. Probably made a great mess of the message, but I've given you the best I could. If the world from you withholds It's enough. All its silver and its gold Can't do it no more. And you'll have to get along with God says, come out of that cave upon the mountain and let me show Just you something. Just remember in His Word <laughs> how He feeds, feeds the little, little bird. bird. <laughs> Take your burden to the Lord and leave it there. I've had enough. I'm worn. 
But when your youthful days are gone And old age is stealing on And your body bends beneath the weight of care Remember Oh, he will never leave never you there leave you. He'll go with you till the end <laughs> Hallelujah Take your burdens to the Lord And leave it your patience this morning please forgive me that is not my intent I thank you for your attentiveness and I pray God to do something supernatural in your life and I want to testify while I still can that I love the Lord I thank him for saving my soul and I'm glad he put me in the ministry and I don't regret a single mile that I've ever traveled for the Lord. Now before morning I may be in a cave trying to water my way back out. But I've been there before. And I'll get back out again. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. This morning. When you come by the door. To shake hands. Maybe you don't even know exactly what to say. If you need help from the Lord. If you'd just ask me if I could wash your hands. I'll know exactly what to do and pray for you. Just pour water over your hands. The Lord knows what you need. Tonight we're worship at 6 o'clock. Prayer at 15 deal. Later than that, usually.